0: that's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Three, two, one.
1: When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me, Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Welcome in, everybody, episode 53. Yeah. of the podcast of yeah. yeah. America, the AirTorz Sports Podcast. It is Tuesday, July 5th, 2022 people. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. I hope everybody had a great 4th of July holiday weekend. Hope you spent time with friends and family. Hope you ate well. Hope you had a few beverages. Hope you didn't have any incidents with fireworks. No Jason Pierre Paul stuff going on over at your house or in your neighborhood. And I do hope you're ready for a fun episode of the Tour Sports Podcast. By the way, a couple things. One, I do think we'll probably go two episodes this week. We don't normally do a Tuesday episode, but we obviously have to react to everything that has happened in the world of college sports. Probably do a second episode either Thursday or Friday. Of course, if something big happens, we will record before. We are all on pins and needles waiting to see what the next big move in college sports will be. But here is a rundown of today's show. First of all, we will do a little bit of kind of reflecting on everything that happened last week. I did the immediate reaction to USC UCLA on Thursday and really spent part of the weekend kind of learning the fallout of it. What does it mean for the rest of the Pac-12? Frankly, you know, I I talked to some people at USC and UCLA, and I was kind of surprised by their reaction to what happened last week. I'll explain that, what happens next, why I think there is one Pac-12 team that really could be in play for the Big Ten, and it's not a school that you necessarily think. From there, we'll get to what I think maybe even the more interesting topic, and this will be the kind of meaty topic of today's show, which is what, what's next in realignment. I have some thoughts on Notre Dame. I have some thoughts on what could happen to the ACC. Those are the two big stories. And I have some information, frankly, that I don't think you're going to hear anywhere else or at least not in depth. And then finally, we will wrap with a topic that I would have hit on last week, but we had the big crazy Pac-12 UCLA-USC Big Ten news. And that's Imani Bates. The former most touted high school player in America is now at Eastern Michigan. I know the topic's about a week old at this point, but I would be remiss if I did not touch on it. That will be today's show. We have a lot to get into, but with that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, I'll just say this, is in general, all of this USC... UCLA, Big Ten, Pac-12 stuff. Listen, we we covered most of it on Thursday. And, And if you missed Thursday's show, emergency show, I put it out Thursday night as opposed to waiting for Friday morning you could go back and listen to that. I think most of the interesting conversation about everything going on in college sports right now is looking ahead to what is next, and we're going to actually do that in the next segment. I have some thoughts on Notre Dame that I think you'll find very interesting. I don't think there's anybody that's going to give you a more in-depth, more well-researched segment on Notre Dame, the ACC, what their future is, and so we're going to get into all of that in a minute, but I also did spend a lot of time over the weekend on the phone with a bunch of people across the Pac-12, including some people that I I know that are pretty connected to the UCLA-USC situation. And so I just want to react to some things that I heard over the weekend, some of the fallout from the move by USC-UCLA, what it means for those two schools, what it means for the other schools. I have an interesting thought on one school that I do think the Big Ten might be interested in, And it's not necessarily one that you might think. And so let's get into everything and just really kind of do a a follow-up post-mortem, if you will, on what has happened with the Pac-12 element of it, including USC, UCLA, which will still be in the Pac-12 for two more football seasons before we move on. The first thing that I learned this weekend by calling around, I will honestly say that I was genuinely surprised by the reaction from the folks that I spoke to at USC and UCLA. I figured publicly, all of the front-facing figures, obviously I know that uh, Lincoln Riley has released a statement and Mick Cronin has released a statement, and I figured from all of those front-facing people, you would get nothing but rainbows and sunshine, that it would be great, we're excited for the next challenge, we appreciate everything the Pac-12 has done for us, blah, 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 but when you actually talk to people behind the scenes, they would have the same questions and concerns that you and I had when we first heard the news. Well, what the heck are you gonna do about travel? How are you gonna handle as a basketball team playing probably 10 games essentially on the East Coast or in the Midwest throughout the season? How are you gonna handle multiple cross-country road trips? How is football going to handle bad weather? Those were the things that I assumed that when I talked to people behind the scenes, that would be a concern. I'll tell you, while there certainly is some concern specifically for the Olympic sports, which you know probably isn't something we'll really get into, that's not my area of expertise, I actually was surprised that I really didn't get much pushback from the USC-UCLA perspective on any sort of negativity in terms of any type of downside to this move. First of all, I would say this, is if I could go back to one thing that I said on Thursday's show that I just think was dead wrong, right? And I get stuff right, and I get stuff wrong, and we talk about it every week where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. I get stuff wrong all the time. But I would say of everything I talked about on Thursday that I was just dead wrong on, I did have a moment in time where I did say that I believe that um, not only was it bad for college sports in the future and everything that we love, but that the quality of play on the field would not be better. Yes, we would get Indiana UCLA in one basketball game. Yes, we would get Ohio State USC in one football game, but outside of that was the quality of play going to be better, and was it going to engage fans in a way that having rivals that you've played for a 100 years would? Well, I'll tell you this. The the across-the-board response to that question was absolutely yes, and Torres, you are dead wrong on that, and so let me explain. From the football perspective, what I can tell you is they are jacked up to be part of a league with fan bases as elite as some of the Big Ten fan bases are. and This is not a knock on the SEC. But you look at some of those great fan bases in the Big Ten, how they travel, how engaged they are, how, how national some of these schools are, Michigan, Penn State, Ohio State, Wisconsin, on and on. That was a big selling point to me. Now, with USC and football, it's not as big of a deal. If USC is good, they will get 75, 80, 90,000 seats, 90,000 people in the L.A. Coliseum. But for UCLA, I really do kind of think it was a little bit of a selling point to get the Big Ten involved, in ter- to, to be part of the Big Ten for future scheduling. Now, you can call this a loser mentality. You can say you shouldn't be relying on other teams' fans to fill your stadium, and I would agree with you. You could say that UCLA is going to have as much of a disadvantage as anybody in college football in about f- you know, three, four, five years, because they could essentially be pl- playing 12 neutral site or road games every year. Yeah, you're going to go to the horseshoe, and you're going to play in front of 100,000 screaming fans, and then when you play Ohio State at home, guess what? That stadium is going to have a lot of scarlet and gray in it. So what I would say is, when it comes to this decision, I will say that this played a bigger role than I thought, and that from the, I don't want to say from the UCLA perspective, but in general, that this is a selling point. The the, the, the impact that these fan bases and these opposing teams could have on your program. The bottom line is, if you look at UCLA, last season, their biggest crowd by far at home was when LSU came to town to face UCLA in week one, great game, whatever. Now, UCLA ended up winning that game, but there was probably 20, 25,000 LSU fans that came. I live in Pasadena. Trust me, I saw it with my own two eyes. And those LSU fans obviously not only travel, they not only stay in your local hotels, eat at your restaurants, but when they get to, to the game day site, when they get to the Rose Bowl, they are now buying tickets. They And by the way, the tickets are jacked up for that one game. They're now buying concessions. They're now paying for parking. Now, they're now certainly buying alcohol when they get to the Rose Bowl. And so I think from UCLA's perspective, they're like, if we could get that three or four times a year instead of one, that's great for the bottom line of, of our athletic department. So it's not just LSU coming for one out-of-conference game every year. Now when Penn State comes, Penn State is going to bring 20,000 fans. And oh, by the way, it's also going to engage UCLA's fan base where wow we have a national brand a big name opponent in our stadium it's not just once a year when we happen to get a good out of conference game at home now we get Penn State at home and they're going to bring 25,000 fans but the hope is that if UCLA has a good football product that's going to convince fans to come out that might not otherwise to see Arizona Cal Oregon State whoever from the Pac-12 beyond that it's not just Penn State Ohio State will obviously bring a ton of fans. Michigan will bring a ton of fans. Wisconsin will bring a ton of fans. Iowa will bring a ton of fans. And so it sounds dumb and it sounds lame. And again, if you want to call it a loser mentality, that you need somebody else to help you fill up your stadium and you're an SEC fan and you're used to sitting in front of 100,000 people every game, I can't argue with that. But I don't think that that wasn't a part of the thought process that went into it. I know for a fact from somebody from UCLA that that was a thought process that went into it. What was equally interesting to me, though, is, is from the basketball perspective. My thought is, my goodness, like that's a lot of travel, but I think that the basketball people are looking at it from the opposite perspective. Part of it is, again, what kind of games are you getting on the home schedule? I don't think travel in basketball is as important, but what I do think when you look at, say, UCLA and USC, listen, we understand that Los Angeles, from a college basketball perspective, and I love college basketball, everybody knows that, it is not Lexington, Kentucky. It's not Bloomington, Indiana. It's not Fall Gallon Fieldhouse. It's not even Tucson, Arizona or Syracuse, New York or or Stores, Connecticut where you're going to get 8, 9, 10, 12, 15, 20,000 depending on what your arena holds. You'll get a sellout crowd for even a bad game on a Tuesday night, non-conference opponent that you're going to win by 30. There's a lot of places you could draw 15,000 people. UCLA and USC are not one of them if you're not playing good opponents. And so talking to people uh, with both programs, I think the excitement is now we get to replace that Tuesday night game against Oregon State, where we got five thousand people and it was tough to convince people to come out on a Tuesday and sit through traffic and do all that. Well, now if we're selling a season ticket package and we can replace Oregon State with Michigan State on a Tuesday, and we can replace Arizona State with Michigan on a, you know a week later, and we can replace fill in the blank, uh, Colorado with Illinois or Wisconsin or Ohio State, that is going to re-engage our fan base and it's going to convince people that you don't just have to show up for the one or two big games. Because right now, I tell you, I've been to a million UCLA games at Pauley Pavilion since I moved to LA. It's great if there is a marquee out-of-conference opponent. This year it was Villanova. It's great if Arizona's in town and it's great if USC, their crosstown rival, is there. It's not great for pretty much anything else, and again, it's not Bloomington, it's not Lexington, it's not stores, it's not uh, Syracuse and the Carrier Dome or whatever the heck they're calling it now, the Crypto.com Dome or whatever they're calling it. And so I think from from the basketball perspective, they're excited too. Now, football, at least the first time or two, they're gonna bring a lot of fans. I don't think it's as much for that, although I do think it also, again, helps a UCLA fan that might say, I'm not gonna buy a season ticket package if there's no marquee games or if Oregon's the only team coming to town. Well, now that season ticket package will include not only USC, but it might include Penn State, Ohio State, and Wisconsin in a given year. It might include Iowa, Michigan, and Penn State in a given year. Fill in the blank, but you get the idea of the kind of brands that it will now bring from a football perspective. Beyond that, what I would also say, and I found this to be very interesting. People weren't as concerned about the travel as I thought they would be. My first inclination was, that's a lot of freaking travel. Now for football, football ironically it's the it's the the reason this decision was made but the travel is of least importance you play four conference road games a year probably in any given year maybe five but it, it, you know it, it's a, a a you in football let me put it this way you fly out the same day every time you fly back the same day if you play on saturday you fly out thursday midday you land thursday night you go through all your stuff on friday and you get ready to play on saturday and then you fly back after the game So football really isn't a concern. The weather, I don't think anybody really is that worried about. I mean, you're realistically talking about one Saturday, maybe two a year, where the weather is really a factor, can really impact things. But what I would say is, even from the basketball perspective, again, my thought process was, man, that's a lot of cross-country flights. Again, do some simple math. Right now, the Big Ten in basketball plays 20 league road games. It plays 20 league road games or 20 20 league games total. Excuse me, I'm sorry, I, I tripped up on there. So 20 league games total, which means that you have 10 league road games. Which means that even if you have even if you put back to back road games in a single trip, that's still five cross country flights. But I talked to some people, and they, they don't seem to be as worried about it as I was, as you might have been, as your first reaction would have been. I think one the thought process is. We don't have to go as crazy scheduling in the out-of-conference because we have so many big road games, so many big conference games. And so instead of playing in that Thanksgiving tournament and then you turn around and you play this team and then you fly across country to play that team and then you play this team in a neutral site game. Yeah, you're still going to want to have a, a, a marquee opponent or two out-of-conference, but it's not as important because, again, in basketball, you're playing Indiana, Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, Illinois, Wisconsin. You fill in the blanks on an annual basis, and you're playing some of those teams twice in a season, maybe three times with a conference tournament. Beyond that, I think what a lot of people told me was, well, now we just kind of get unique with our our out-of-conference scheduling, right? Now, I will say, I think it's going to be interesting from the league office. I think the league office could probably do USC and UCLA a favor by maybe knocking out one of those road trips early in the season, so it's not five from early January to early March. But what what, what, what I was also told was, was that if you really look at it, you just kind of do your scheduling differently. What what did I just say? You don't have to play as many cross-country things. Even if you want to play in that Thanksgiving tournament, instead of flying across the country to the Bahamas or flying across the country to New York and playing in Madison Square Garden, now you do one in Vegas, which is a 45-minute flight. You don't get that 45-minute flight very much during the conference portion of the the season. So rather than flying to New York for a, a, a week during Thanksgiving, you fly to Vegas, you fly to Phoenix, you do something close by. You host your own event. You play some of the marquee West Coast teams. And I know it's easy to say, oh, nobody will want to schedule UCLA or USC now. Well, with all the money they can offer, I guarantee that maybe Gonzaga is interested, that Arizona is interested, that San Diego State is interested. And so, again, just to kind of put a bow on this, because I do want to get to what's next, I just found it very interesting. I don't think people were nearly as upset or concerned about the things that you and I initially thought of as I expected them to be. Now, again, I can't speak for Olympic sports, I can't speak for baseball programs that play whatever, 60 games a year, 70 games a year, but I'm just telling you, it doesn't seem to be as concerning to the people involved as I expected it to be. Now, a couple quick notes in terms of everything else, I'll say this, I am fascinated to see what happens with the rest of the Pac-12. Now, uh, we're going to talk about it in a minute with Notre Dame and and, and the ACC, because I, I those are the moves that matter. No disrespect to the Pac-12, there's, there's reports that, or, or that uh, Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, and Colorado are meeting with the Big 12 this week, and while that would create a great basketball conference with potentially Arizona joining Kansas, Baylor, Texas Tech, uh, Houston, which is joining, it doesn't change the needle in terms of the Big 10 and the SEC pulling away from the rest of college sports. But what is interesting to me about this Pac-12 thing is a couple things. It is clear, and I told you this on Thursday. You know, I get a lot of stuff wrong, but I got this one right. Dennis Dodd from CBS reported that the the Big Ten, at least as of right now, has no interest in Oregon or Washington. If they were interested, they could have brought on Oregon and Washington right now. And so what's interesting to me is, again, one, uh, about 40% of the existing league is going to meet with the Big 12 this week. So that's Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, Colorado. But even if they all somehow stay together, even if those teams come together, we got a report this past weekend that somehow the the Pac-12 is planning on expanding and George Kliokov, the commissioner, is looking into different expansion options. And with no disrespect intended towards San Diego State, Fresno State, Boise, UNLV, whoever, what I can tell you is I think it's going to be hard to get any of these schools to commit to anything. Now, I can't speak to the Arizona side of things if they go to the the, the Big 12 and what kind of demands the Big 12 would make, but what I'm curious about, and I was talking to somebody about this kind of pretty high up in the Pac-12 over the last couple days. If you're Oregon, if you're Washington, and you know that this is all eventually headed towards a 20 or a 22 or a 24 team super conference with the SEC or or the Big 10, And you know you're one of those schools that might get an invite. Now, if you're Washington State and Oregon State, maybe you do go ahead and say, hey, whatever you want, just sign me up as long as I'm in whatever this is going to be going forward. But if you're Oregon and Washington, remember, the reason this happened now is because the Pac-12 TV contract was up. How are you going to get Oregon, Washington, Stanford, the Arizona schools if they don't leave for the Big 12? How are you going to get anyone to commit to anything Knowing where this is going and everybody not wanting to be where you are. So I think that's an interesting thing to follow. We're going to talk about the Notre Dame thing in a second. I will tell you, and again, we'll discuss this with the Notre Dame stuff. I've seen reports that that if Notre Dame joins, Oregon might be another team that would join. Obviously, if Notre Dame were to join the Big Ten in addition to USC and UCLA, that then becomes a situation where we have, uh, what, 17 teams with Notre Dame? I've seen a report that Oregon would be number 18. I've actually heard it's going to be Stanford and that Stanford's kind of lying in the weeds. There's some talk, and we'll talk about this again in a minute, there's some talk that Stanford as an academic power wants to de-emphasize athletics. I don't think that's the case at all. From what I was told, if anything, they're gearing up to make a run towards the Big Ten whenever whenever there's another opportunity to get there. Lastly, what I would just say, Lastly, what I would just say is this. A lot of people have asked me, Torres, you live in, big, uh, in, in Pac-12 country. What has the mood been like? What has the reaction been like in Pac-12 country? And all I would really say is it's been very interesting to me to watch because I think when stuff like this happens, everyone feels manipulated and deceived, and, or deceived, excuse me, all that stuff. And, I, and I'm not saying that's not what has happened here. But I also kind of found it interesting that all 12 Pac-12 fan bases, and I can't speak for every single one, but I spoke to enough administrators, coaches, fans over the course of this weekend, everybody kind of had the same reaction. Everybody was disappointed that it happened, including USC and UCLA fans. I think they are sad that even though they're on the right side of this thing, that it could be... uh, What they've had for the last 50 years, 75 years, is not what they're going to have for the next 75 years. And it's the same for Arizona fans, Oregon, Washington, Washington State. I think they're all worried about the future. But what I would also say is that everybody kind of has an understanding. Like, USC and UCLA fans are like, I'm just happy that it's my school that's on the right side of this thing. Arizona, Oregon, Oregon State, Washington fans... I don't get the sense that they're mad at USC and UCLA the way that maybe Oklahoma State fans, Texas Tech fans, uh, Baylor fans were at Oklahoma and Texas last year. Because I do think that most understand this whole thing has been screwed up for years. The last commissioner, Larry Scott, really left everybody in a bad spot. And that also, if it was my school, I would want my school to do the same thing. If I'm an Arizona fan... I'm not, I can't be mad at USC and UCLA because if it was me, I would have wanted the same exact thing for my school. So it's been weird. It's been interesting living here. But that to me is really kind of the genesis of what happened since the last time that all of us spoke on the Aaron Tour Sports Podcast about this. Biggest takeaway is I, I do think USC and UCLA, I don't think they're nearly as concerned about the travel and the weather and the things that you and I are worried about internally. I think they're excited about adding to the schedule in football adding to the schedule in basketball all that good stuff it'll be really interesting to see what happens with the rest of the Pac-12 although as I said you know it's not pretty and if you're not part of this Big Ten SEC conglomerate you are way 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 behind that said I do want to take a quick break I do want to come back and I do want to talk about what's next right I spent a lot of time talking about okay this is what happened in Pac-12 country this weekend let's turn our attention to what's next Is Notre Dame going to join a conference? Can the ACC, will the ACC break up? Can those schools get out of their TV contract? We're going to discuss that all next. I will be right freaking back.
0: Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All
1: right, we're going to get back to the show in a minute. But before we do, I want to welcome in a new sponsor, Athletic Greens and AthleticGreens.com. With one delicious scoop of AG1, that's Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy recovery, focus, and aging. Quick side story. The founder of this company, they were experiencing gut health issues and were spending over $100 a day on vitamins and supplements. They knew there had to be a better way. That's Athletic Greens. For the cost of just $3 a day, you can get Athletic Greens. Here's the best part. It contains less than one gram of sugar with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. No GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything while still tasting good. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com slash emerging. That's athleticgreens.com emerging for one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase athleticgreens.com slash emerging to take over ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Thank you again for being our partner.
0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Uh, do want to switch gears a little bit, right? So so we, we've spent a lot of time over the last couple days talking USC, UCLA, but that's now done, right? Like there is no turning back. There is no the, – the USC and UCLA are putting out graphics with the Big Ten uh, logo on it. I woke up in Big Ten country here in Los Angeles over the last couple days, so that has happened and it is not going anywhere. And so what I want to do now is focus on what I think everybody now has turned their attention to, which is what is next for the college sports landscape, and specifically what I want to get into are what I believe to be the two most important, really the only two variables that matter in terms of what happens next in conference realignment. Now look, over the next couple days, you're going to hear all sorts of stuff about all sorts of different scenarios. What does the Big 12 do? Do they try to steal teams from the Pac-12? Does the Pac-12 try to expand? Does the ACC try to somehow grab Pac-12 schools and make an East Coast, West Coast? Here's the bottom line. None of it really matters. No disrespect intended to the the San Diego State and Fresno State fans trying to get an invite to the Pac-12. No disrespect to the Texas Tech and Baylor fans hoping to grab a couple of those Pac-12 schools. None of it matters. And one thing I would say before I get into the genesis of what I want to talk about. If you hear of any conversation about all sorts of super conferences, ignore it. There are two super conferences going forward. There are only two conferences that ultimately in the landscape of college sports really are going to matter. They are the SEC and they are the Big 10. And the bottom line is the Big 12 in a week or a month or a year from now, they might have 20 schools. The Pac-12 might have 20 schools. The ACC might try to expand in some way. But there are only two conferences that are going to matter in the grand scheme of college sports going forward, and that is the SEC and the Big Ten. I hate to say it, but it is the truth. They're gonna have the best teams, the biggest brands, the most money, and so what I want to do now is turn my attention to what I believe is next in the realignment shuffle as it pertains to those two mega brands, the Big Ten and the the SEC, and as I said a minute ago, there are only really two moves that matter going forward. The first one, the biggest one, and I know some of you are going to roll your eyes. The biggest move that matters right now, what's next for Notre Dame? And I know what some of you are thinking, oh, Notre Dame, they're always so overrated. They stink. If they were in the SEC, they would be the 37th best team. And we only got 16 teams, right? I, 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 I don't care what you think of Notre Dame on the field, win-loss record, what they do in the playoff. The last time they played Alabama, they lost by this much. Notre Dame is a national brand with a national following, and any conference in America would love to have them. Yes, SEC fans, if Jack Swarbrick, their AD, called Greg Sankey today, the deal would be done by the end of the day. Same with the Big Ten, same with the ACC, so they are the biggest chess piece left. With no disrespect to Clemson, no disrespect to Florida State, there are still other valuable commodities out there. But Notre Dame is the single biggest one, and it is going to be fascinating to see what decision they make going next. Before we get into it, what I would also say is a couple other things as well. One, don't even give me, could they join the ACC? They're not going to join the ACC because the money simply doesn't make sense. If they go to a conference, it is going to be the Big Ten, and let me take it a step further. As I just said a minute ago, I believe they are the single biggest linchpin in what is the next round of realignment, and they may be the single only linchpin in what happens in terms of the next round of realignment, and let me explain why. I believe that if Notre Dame says we are staying independent, we are not joining a conference, we're not joining the Big Ten, we're not joining the SEC, we're certainly not joining the ACC, Pac-12, or Big 12, then I don't know that we have a next round of realignment immediately. My sense is that the Big Ten is content at 16 teams if Notre Dame says no. Remember, we learned this week that Oregon and Washington tried to reach out and they got a, you know, they called the Big Ten offices and the Big Ten offices said, new phone, Hootis, click. That's the truth. I hate to say it, Oregon and Washington fans, but it's the truth. Last year, when when Texas and Oklahoma left for the SEC, the Big Ten could have had any of those leftovers from the Big 12, including the, at the time, national champion basketball Baylor team the national champion eventually in basketball, Kansas. There was talk of should they have Kansas? Should they? they stood pat until they got USC and UCLA. So I believe that they will stay pat if Notre Dame does not want to join a conference. And at that point, we're going to probably be at 16 here for at least the foreseeable future in both the Big Ten and the SEC. Now, if Notre Dame says they want to join, that's a completely different conversation. And then you have to start figuring out how all the puzzle pieces fit together. Does that mean that Stanford as another high achieving academic school joins Notre Dame to get the, the big 10 to 18 teams also would obviously provide some some West Coast relief for some of those travel uh, schedule tra- some of the travel stuff for USC UCLA Does it mean that the, the Big Ten I believe at that point may go well beyond 17 teams with Notre Dame maybe at Stanford that's when maybe Oregon and Washington get the call that's when maybe, some schools from the ACC specifically North Carolina and Virginia they kind of fit the sort of footprint they kind of fit the sort of academic track record do they get the call at that point and we're going to talk about the ACC here in a minute obviously if Notre Dame goes to the Big 10 and they get to 17 and they start adding you know what that means the SEC is going to actively pursue some of those southern based ACC schools Clemson, Florida State, Miami, etc. And so to me, Notre Dame is the single biggest linchpin, and now let's get into what they're actually going to do. Because I do believe they have a sort of fascinating situation going on, and I believe that for the most part, people are actually looking at it from the wrong direction. When I hear the conversation about Notre Dame, it seems as though everybody is focused on the wrong thing. Everybody is focused on, well, are they, they're they going to have to join a conference because they're they're going to run out of teams to play. If there's 20 teams in the ACC, or the SEC, 20 teams in the Big Ten, they're not going to have anybody to play. That's the wrong reasoning. It's Notre Dame. It's a national brand. They always rate well on TV. They are always going to find games, even if it means, uh, I don't know how it would all work, but they will find games. That's not the issue. What the big issue is, like every decision in realignment, like Texas and Oklahoma's decision last year, like USC and UCLA's decision this year, It comes down to dollars and cents. And my thought with Notre Dame, at what point does the economic model outgrow even the independence that Notre Dame currently has in the college football structure? Because here's the thing, the reason why Notre Dame has remained independent forever is because they got a sweetheart deal. They got the most amazing setup in college sports, bar none. They're independent in football. They get to travel across the country, play this week in Vegas, play this week in Florida, play this week in South Bend, play this week in New York City. They have a home for all of their non-football sports in the ACC. They get a cut of the ACC revenue. They get millions of dollars from NBC to broadcast their national games at home in South Bend. Oh, by the way, their road games are always on national TV because again, they're a national brand in ESPN, ABC, CBS, Fox. They all want Notre Dame. So Notre Dame has a perfect setup. It doesn't get much better than that. You know, the only equivalent I can think of is you being married and your wife saying, hey, honey, if you want a girlfriend, go ahead and grab a girlfriend. You want a girlfriend or two on the side, go ahead and grab one. Or, honey, go get a boyfriend, you know, for the ladies. Maybe the ladies want a boyfriend on the side too. Their husband annoys them. The point I'm trying to make, it's a sweetheart deal. You're getting the best of both worlds. There's the old saying, you have the cake and you eat it too. You can't have both. Notre Dame has both right now. Here is the thing, though, that keeps getting me tripped up as I think about the future of Notre Dame, that sweetheart deal isn't quite as as, as sweetheart anymore. I'm I'm not going to make the analogy of the wife-girlfriend thing, but the sweetheart deal isn't as sweet as it once was, and let me explain why. And I was blown away when I saw this. So Saturday, I'm just doing my thing, and I looked up, what is Notre Dame's TV deal with NBC? Because I'm like, oh, they must be making money hand over fist from, from NBC. Well, They're making $15 million a year from NBC. Great amount of money for any school, TV money. It's incredible. When you factor in that they obviously make other money from the ACC because the ACC, of course, broadcasts all of their non-football sports, they're raking in a pretty good chunk of change. I tried to find a definitive number on the ACC. I can't find it. I called some people. Nobody seemed to have an answer. Let's call it about 10 to 15 million dollars in addition to the ACC. Let's say that they're making 25 to 30 million dollars a year off that t- off the TV contract, one with NBC and one with uh, the other with with ESPN, ABC as part of the ACC. And I know I'm tr- using a lot of analog- uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, you know abbreviations here, but let's say they make another 10 from the ACC because they play basketball, women's basketball, etc. in that conference. Let's let's be nice and round that up to 30 million dollars. Here's the problem with that number. Did you see what the reports are about how much money these conferences are going to bring in when Texas and Oklahoma get to the SEC and USC and UCLA get to the Big Ten? First of all, just right now, just this second, this past year, with no Texas and Oklahoma in the SEC, the SEC made roughly $54 million per school. The Big Ten, without USC and UCLA, brought in $57 million per school. So Notre Dame is already falling behind. Now they're gonna add schools, and the reports are it's gonna be somewhere between 75 and $100 million for the Big Ten with their new TV contract, and you know the SEC isn't gonna be far behind because of all the big brands that they have there. And so my question with Notre Dame becomes, even if you're making... 30 32 35 million which by the way is about what most of these ACC schools are making every year. At what point is even Notre Dame falling behind by not joining a conference? At what point are you financially you, you know it, you're you're supposed to be competing with Ohio State and Michigan and USC and Alabama and Texas for national championships and you're bringing in half of the TV revenue? At what point does it not make sense for Notre Dame? And so to me, I think the single most fascinating, the most interesting thing that should be going on behind the scenes. I have no idea if it is. What should be going on behind the scenes right now, the second that that report on Thursday from John Wilner, USC, UCLA went out, if I was running NBC Sports, I would have jumped on the phone with Notre Dame and said, let's rip up that TV contract. Let's get you something new. The TV contract runs through 2025, $15 million a year. I'd rip it up and I'd start over and I don't know what NBC's financials are. But the idea that you're going to get them at $15 million or even $30 million in the foreseeable future, I just don't see it. I just don't see how that makes sense for Notre Dame. And I know you want to keep your independence and you're different and you're not the same as everybody else. I'm just telling you though, at what point is the Big Ten and the SEC making so much money that you have no choice but to join? And so to me, I, I, listen, I don't think Notre Dame's necessarily in a rush. But I do think that they have some real tough decisions to make going forward. They can't go anywhere till 2025. But after 2025, like, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Uh, you know, and so I, I would expect over the next week, the next month, the next whatever, I would expect us to either get a completely new TV deal for Notre Dame, or I would expect you to start hearing whispers, and they might happen as soon as this week. I don't know. I'm not claiming to have insight, uh, you know, inside information on what's going on in the walls of Notre Dame right now. But if I had to guess, I do think at some point they joined the Big Ten. I really do because I think at some point it just becomes not sustainable going forward for them to remain an independent. The, the money that they're leaving on the table by not joining the Big Ten is just too much. By the way, all their big rivals historically are there except right now for Stanford, and maybe Stanford comes as, as, as an 18th team. All their rivals, historic, Michigan, Michigan State, Purdue, USC is now a Big Ten rival. Yes, it would be a Big Ten rival. That sounds crazy, but it's the truth. So that's number one. What happens with Notre Dame? Number two of equal interest is the ACC. What happens in the ACC, what can be done, and frankly, what is happening right now behind the scenes. Now, for people who don't follow this stuff religiously, I I don't blame you. It's not your job. It's my job to follow this stuff and try to get you the information as best as I can. Well, the ACC in theory should be pretty, it's pretty airtight that not much can be done. The way their TV set structure is set up, they are locked in to their current TV deal till 2036, 2036. And that's the difference right now between the ACC and where the Pac-12 was at. The Pac-12, their TV contract came up in 2024, they were in the middle of negotiations, and the TV contract was coming up, and so those schools are about to be free agents. None of those ACC schools are about to be free agents at all. With that said, though, it doesn't mean that lawyers are across that conference are not going through that contract with a fine-tooth comb to see if they can get out of it. Now, I have no idea if they'll be able to, but all I heard out of ACC country this, this weekend, 4th of July, was... Those ACC lawyers are working overtime to figure out if there is a way out. Because if there's not, by the way, you can leave before 2036, but you have to pay a hefty fee. I saw upwards of $100 million to get out of that contract. Now, first of all, I do think they are actively trying to get out. And remember, I said this on Thursday's show, and I'll keep saying it. I want to give credit to my buddy Mark Ryan, who works in South Carolina, radio host, did Clemson pre- and post-game, because he said a year ago, Clemson and FSU are trying to get in touch with the SEC. I truly believe that because of course they are. Everybody is. Again, this is no disrespect to the ACC. This is no disrespect to the 10 schools remaining in the Pac-12. No disrespect to the Big 12. There is a huge gap between the money that the Big 10 and the SEC are bringing in and the money that everybody else is making and the money that they're going to make going forward. You think the gap is big now. Give it another five, six, seven years. And so, of course, Clemson, Florida State, Miami, North Carolina, Duke, whoever. By the way, Oregon, Washington, Stanford on the, on the West Coast. Of course they want to get into one of those leagues because they don't want to fall behind. Clemson has it pretty good right now in the ACC, but what happens when SEC schools are making twice as much money as they are? What happens when Dabo can't just snap his fingers and get the, the new facility or the new this or the new that that Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, and Jimbo Fisher are getting? And so for me... It is going to be fascinating to see over the next couple weeks, the next couple months, maybe next couple years, can these ACC schools figure a way out of those TV contracts? And then I'll take it a step further. is Are any of them just willing to bite the bullet and pay that potential nine-figure buyout to the league to leave? And I think that's in play too. I think that is in play too because just think about it at its most basic level. It might sound crazy. It might sound crazy for a Clemson or a Florida State or a Miami to pay $100 million to get out of the ACC. But if you're going from making $30 million a year in TV revenue to $100 million a year in the SEC, well, now we're talking a a completely different ballgame, aren't we? Now we're talking we have the money where it just makes sense. And it was funny, I was talking to somebody kind of in the Pac-12 over the course of this weekend, and they were talking about the USC-UCLA thing. They're like, they don't even have to pay, but if they did, there comes a certain point where you're going to make so much money that you're willing to pay money up front to get out of whatever because you can see the pot of gold at the end of the tunnel, to use a bad Notre Dame term because we were just talking Notre Dame. And so what is going to be fascinating to me is exactly what I just said. What's going to be fascinating is the question of, are these ACC schools able to get out of their contracts And if not, are they willing to pay? And I'll say this, if Notre Dame does in fact decide to join the Big Ten, then I believe you will see schools in the ACC willing to get out because they can see where things are going. They can't wait until 2036 to get into the SEC because the sport is going to be completely different by then. And so I think we could see some craziness. I talked about what what schools I think would make sense. I think obviously Clemson, Florida State, Miami – maybe someone else makes sense for the SEC. I don't know if that's Duke because of basketball. I don't know if it's NC State. I don't know if it's UNC. Obviously, I think UNC, by the way, I would say outside of Notre Dame is maybe the second most valuable property left. Now, maybe it's Oregon football. Maybe it's whatever. But I do think North Carolina, really great basketball program. Um, You know, uh, The football program has been pretty good. They just played in the Orange Bowl in January of 2021, so it's not like it was ancient history that they were just in a big-time bowl game, big state school, big revenue, big football stadium. I could see them being interested in the the SEC being interested in them. I could also see the Big Ten being interested in them and Virginia as well, both great academic schools that, for some reason, academics apparently still matter to the Big Ten. I love how we're, we're, we're making USC football players, and not just USC football players, but USC golfers and tennis players and volleyball players, yeah, you got to fly to Minnesota in the middle of winter, but we got to keep up the academic standards that we've set so far. So to me, those are the two things to watch. What happens with Notre Dame? And I, do think, we, I think there's at least a possibility that we get some sort of re- resolution or some sort of idea soon, because I do think they know the clock is ticking. And then on the flip side, I will also say, watch out for the ACC, because if Notre Dame does go, I think then you see the Clemsons, the Florida States, the Miami saying, I don't care what it takes. We got to get to the SEC. We can't wait till 2036. Those are the two things that you have to follow. So what do I do? I want to take a quick break. I will be right back and we will switch gears and start to wrap the show. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. Final segment of the show, so good to be back. And I do want to switch gears, and I do want to wrap uh, with a story that, frankly, I probably would have and should have gotten to last week if it weren't for the USC-UCLA news. And obviously, look, once the USC-UCLA stuff happened... I couldn't talk about anything other than that because it was clearly the biggest story in sports. So last Thursday, this would have been a topic that I hit on. Instead, first reaction to the USC UCLA news, which by the way, one of the most downloaded shows we've done in a while, so I clearly made the right decision. Today, you know what I already talked about in terms of what's next. And right now, I do want to switch gears to that topic of what I was going to talk about. That topic is the story of Imani Bates. You all remember him at one point touted to be one of the best high school basketball prospects in the history of high school basketball, decided to come to college last year at Memphis. It doesn't work out. And he announces about two months ago that he is going to transfer. Well, finally, last Wednesday, there was some talk that maybe Louisville was the school. Maybe there were some other schools in the mix. But last Wednesday, he finally made his decision. And again, I know this topic is a week old, but I do think it's important. Monty Bates looking for another college, and he decides to commit to, roll please, not Louisville, not any other power conference, he commits to Eastern Michigan University. And to be clear, he is from the area surrounding Eastern Michigan. He played many of his high school games early in his career at Eastern Michigan, and this is being sold as a homecoming of sorts for this kid. I don't believe it to be true. I don't believe that this was the best place for him. I don't believe it's going to work out well. I hope I'm wrong on that. And I do believe that if anything, I just feel bad for this kid who was so highly touted coming out of high school. And I think there's a lot of layers to this and we have to discuss it all. First of all, in terms of the player, listen, I'm not gonna spend too much time on this. I've spent so much time talking about this kid over the last four or five years. Not four, but you know, two, three years. But as a quick reminder of everything that this poor kid has gone through over the last three, four years, Monty Bates, early, early in his high school career, like his freshman season, was touted as the maybe the best high school basketball prospect since LeBron James. As a sophomore, he won National Player of the Year. He ended up on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and everything was really going pretty well Frankly, until the pandemic. And then the pandemic hits, and and I can't speak to what he was doing behind the scenes or whatever. But last summer was the first time anybody had really seen him on a national stage in a while. And it was about this time last year that you really started to hear the whispers. This guy that we were comparing to LeBron James, that we were comparing to Kevin Durant, his style of play when he was 15 years old, he's starting to regress, or other people are starting to catch up. And it was around this point last summer that a lot of people said he's not even the best high school player in his own class. At that point, there's kind of a weird moment in time where, listen, this stuff, and and by the way, he's regarded, maybe he's not even the best high school player in his class, that's okay, it happens. There's only only one number one ranked player, it all happens, it's all good. But rather than just getting into the gym and getting better, rather than going to maybe a a high school or prep school where he would be coached really hard, remember he played for his father's prep school uh, that was created for him. Instead, the family decides to fast-track everything that's going on, and send him to Memphis as a 17-year-old freshman. I talked about it a ton at the time. It made zero sense because Amani Bates was just 17 years old, meaning he would have to play not only last year of college basketball, but this coming season. So he elects to reclassify to go to Memphis, and to be blunt, it just didn't work out well. Yes, if you look at the stats, he didn't play that poorly, 9.7 points per game, but if you watch the games, he was very inefficient, from the field, 33% from three, two and a half turnovers per game and just 23 minutes of of play per game. But then if you you followed Memphis, it was pretty clear that the team was just significantly better without him. Late January, he ends up leaving the team with what is called a back injury. And that was when Memphis was really struggling. When he played his last game for the University of Memphis uh, prior to returning to the team late in the year, Memphis as a program was reeling. They were 11 and 8 when he left. They end up getting red hot without him. There were actually some pretty pretty good stats that showed that that they were maybe one of the two or three best teams late in the season. He does come back for the NCAA tournament. They finished 11 and 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 3 without him. But he comes back for the NCAA tournament. Season ends, whatever. Again, because he had reclassified because he started last year at 17 years old, he wasn't eligible for the NBA draft. And instead decides to enter the transfer portal and that's really where I want to pick this up that was kind of the quick everything you need to know but at that point I talked a lot about him on this show and I really talked about what I thought he should do next and it's just my opinion like everything else I'm not saying I have all the answers but what I said at the time was it didn't work out at Memphis you were playing for an iconic former player you know it didn't work out great coaching staff great teammates this is what you need to do I wouldn't even enter the transfer portal. Instead, I would actually go to the G League Ignite program, work with professional coaches, work behind the scenes, play with older players, learn how to be a pro, get better, get to the NBA a year from now. A lot of players have chosen that G League Ignite program, and I'll be honest, uh, you know, I don't think those guys are very happy with me that run G League Ignite because I was crit- critical of them during the NBA draft. A few of them decided to chirp at me. But they do a great job of developing players even if the NBA draft process didn't work out in their favor. They did a great job with Jalen Green. They did a great job with Jonathan Kaminga. They did a great job with Jaden Hardy who I think is actually going to be a pretty good pro and I think he fell too far in the NBA draft. So if you're Imani Bates, my suggestion was always go there, get off the radar. You don't need to be the center of attention. But then if you do come back to college basketball, here's the one thing you can't do. Don't go somewhere where you are 100% the focal point, because you just proved at Memphis you're not anywhere close to being ready for that. And it's not a knock on the kid and it's not that he's bad, it's not that he's this. But you were at Memphis, you were 17 years old, you weren't ready, go somewhere, learn how to be part of the team where you're not the focal point. And so early in the process, it seemed as though Louisville was gonna be that school. And I said, I think that's a perfect spot. I would still send him to G League Ignite if it was my son. But if he's going to go back to college, go to a place like Louisville, Kenny Payne is coming from the NBA. He knows what it takes to turn high school kids into pros. He did it for 15 years or 10 years at Kentucky and Oregon. Then he's coming from the NBA. He knows what a pro looks like. He knows how a pro eats, how they act, how they sleep, how they handle themselves on the road. Doesn't work out there. There was buzz a little bit about Seton Hall, but the one thing that I just thought never made sense there was even buzz that he was going to return to Memphis, although I think Penny Hardaway kind of shot that down. The one thing I didn't think he should do, though, again, is go somewhere where you're the focal point, and that is exactly why. Bottom line, end of story. I do not like this decision to go to Eastern Michigan. It's his life. It's his parents. You know, uh, you know, his camp is making this decision. I just think this was a really bad spot for him, and let me explain why. First of all, as I just said, he is he he proved at Memphis he was playing with other good players. Remember, he was playing with Jalen Dern, who was a first round draft pick. DeAndre Williams, really good college player. Lester Quinones is going to get a summer league shot. Um, y- you know, I'm trying to go through uh, uh, what's the other kid's name. I'm blanking on the other the the other guy at Memphis. Why am I blanking on his name? It's driving me crazy. But you were around other good players and you struggled. Landers Nolly was the other player. I don't know why I was thinking of something else. You were around other good players and you couldn't you know you didn't even fit in with good college players so go somewhere again go somewhere where you're going to get better go somewhere where you're going to develop where the coaching staff is going to uh, you know work with you all that good stuff and it's not a criticism of eastern michigan but now to go somewhere where everything revolves around you where you're clearly the best player i just don't think that's the right move because you couldn't even you didn't play up to expectation when you weren't the best player when you weren't double and triple team, when you weren't the focal point of every other team's scouting report. So now you're gonna go to an Eastern Michigan program that has struggled in recent years, that has largely been sort of, I hate to be rude, but basically irrelevant, and you're gonna go there and you're gonna be the focal point and you're gonna be the focal point of every team's scouting report. I just don't think it's gonna work out well because it didn't work out well at Memphis when you're playing with other good players. And so he's going to Eastern Michigan, and I think, look, we've seen two or three examples of this exact situation in college basketball over the last couple years. Remember, Patrick Baldwin was regarded as one of the top five prospects in high school basketball in the 2021 class at one point. Could have gone to Duke. Could have gone to pretty much any program in the country. He chooses last year to go play for his father at Milwaukee. Now, admittedly, there were some injury concerns. But he also just did not play that well in his time at Milwaukee. It did not work out. Now, people say, oh, you know, it worked out because he ended up as a first-round pick. And to a degree, it sort of did. But a couple things. One, I wouldn't say that it totally worked out because if he had gone to Duke, he probably would have ended up in the top 10. Now he ends up at 28th overall. But beyond that, the difference is he had one year where he had some injuries at Milwaukee and he ended up as a first-round pick. This is now Amani Bates' second year of college basketball. If this doesn't work out in your second year of college basketball, then it's no longer we're gonna project out, we're gonna take you as a project, we think we can develop you. It's just, you're two years into college basketball and you can't perform. And that's uh, you know that, that's what Patrick Baldwin went through last year. Amani Bates, it's gonna be accentuated again because it's his second year. And I'm not even factoring in all of the other things that I think just don't make sense about this decision. If it's really about developing into a pro, you're going to a school that plays in the MAC, where they don't have the nutrition that a Power 5, Power 6 school has. They don't have the, the, the strength and conditioning that a Power 5, Power 6 school has. They don't travel as a Power 5, Power 6 school has. You're not flying first class. You're not staying in first class hotels. You're not, I mean, flying charter, I should say, staying in first class hotels. It's a lot of bus rides. It's a lot of two, three, four guys to the room. It's not easy. I know mid-major basketball coaches, it is not easy at that level. They don't have the money of of an ACC school, of an SEC school, of a Big Ten school. And so now you're putting your career on the line at a place where you don't have very much help and everything, basically every factor that helps develop you for the next level, strength and conditioning, meals, travel, it's working against you. And so that's why I don't like it. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of Maker. Remember two years ago, Maker? oh, he's going to Howard. They're all going to go to HBCUs. It's changing everything forever. I said, I think it's a real bad move. McCormaker played a couple games and got out of there. But I don't like this move. And what it really says to me more than anything, I'll just be honest. I feel bad for this kid, and let me tell you why. I truly believe that really every step along the way, and I don't think his parents are purposely trying to sabotage his career, but it feels like every step of the way, the adults in his, his life have let him down. Every step of the way, when there was a time where they could have made the decision with his best interests for his development, it feels like they've made the wrong decision every time. First of all, you go back to his early high school days. When everybody, and this is the one of the ultimate, this might be the ultimate where Aaron was right. When he was getting hyped like, like, like he's the next LeBron KD, what did I say on this show? You guys know, because I talk about it all the time. I said, pump the brakes. First of all, I've seen a million kids get hyped up as the next big thing as a high school freshman, sophomore, even junior. And a lot of times it doesn't work out when you put too much pressure on guys too young. But here was the thing about Amani: Once he got that label, rather than embracing it, rather than taking on all challengers, His family hid him, okay? I'll give you a quick side story and then I'll get back to Imani Bates. I I think most people listening to this show know this, but I've, I've known LeVar Ball and the Ball family since Lonzo was a junior in high school, which means that LaMelo was a eighth grader when I met the Ball family, okay? And you can criticize LeVar for a lot of things. I'm sure if you gave him truth serum, he would say he regrets certain things. I don't think he should have taken his son out of high school and sent him all over the world. But the one thing you can never criticize LeVar Ball for, he always put his kids in the most challenging positions possible and they played up. Even when he pulled them out of high school, what did he do? He sent them overseas and played them against professionals. LaMelo, when he would have been, uh, and I'm talking about LaMelo Ball, obviously. LaMelo, when he would have been a freshman, was playing in Australia against grown men. And so you can criticize LeVar Ball for a lot. But he put his kids in the most challenging positions possible. They had to learn how to overcome adversity. And now you look at LaMelo Ball. He was an all-star at 21 years old. Now let's go back to Imani Bates, because this was my biggest criticism at the time. How can you call him the best high school player since LeBron or KD or plays like KD when he didn't even play against the best competition in his own high school years? So I said it at the time. He never played Team USA basketball. Team USA has multiple mini camps every year where they bring the best players together all the time. And one thing that he could have done, one thing that all players in, in high school basketball do, when Team USA calls, you show up, right? When Team USA calls, you show up. And my argument was, if you go there as a sophomore and you're not the best player, it's okay. He's two years separated from like Cade Cunningham and all those guys. So if you go, and he was originally, he reclassified. But you go, if it doesn't work out, if Cade Cunningham or BJ Boston or Jalen Green or whoever is better, that's okay. That's how you learn. That's how you get better. They avoided Team USA. In AAU, I kept saying this. I was screaming it from the mountaintops so and nobody would listen. He didn't even play at the highest level of AAU until last year when he had to because of his age. There's different levels of AAU. 17s as players going into their senior year, 16s, sophomore year, all that stuff. And at the time, he was playing 16s when he was the biggest, tallest, strongest kid on the court. And so of course he's gonna look good. He's six foot nine shooting over a six foot three center. And I said, if he's that good, why is he not playing at the highest level of AAU? Then again, his dad opens an academy to put him in the best position to succeed. There were stories. You can Google this, it happened. Jaden Akins, a kid who's currently at Michigan State, was at that school. He went after Imani one day. He said, you're too selfish. You don't pass the ball. You don't do this. You don't do that. You know what happened? They threw the kid out of the school, Janet Aikens. You could Google it. You could Google it. It happened. They threw a kid out of the high school because he had the audacity to step up to Imani Bates. And so all of these things, they never put him in position to get better, to be challenged, to this, to that. And then again, what did I say to lead this segment? Last summer, it's all falling apart. Last summer was the moment in time where his family should have said, you know what, we've done all we can. I'll use a quick, another example. Rob Dillingham, the kid who just committed to Kentucky, I don't know if he's gonna be great, I don't know if he's not. But I saw an interview with his dad where his dad said at about 10, 11 years old, I stopped coaching him. I said, I've taken you as far as you can and you need somebody else to take you the rest of the way. Amani, it was the exact opposite. Parents are over-involved, parents are this, parents are that. And then last year, at the moment in time, Go to another high school. Don't go to the high school that your dad built for you. Go to Montverde. Go to Oak Hill. He instead decides to reclassify and go to Memphis. What are you doing? And now you have this moment in time where you can do what you should do. Go to G League Ignite. Go to another power program. Find one. There's probably 50 power five, power six schools in college basketball. One of them would have taken you. Instead, you choose Eastern Michigan. And I'll just be honest. I don't think this works out. I don't think he's ready to be the best player by far, or the focal point of a team that doesn't have very much talent around him. Where he is going to be the the, the you know everybody's going to be he's going to be the focal point of everybody's scouting report. They're going to send two three guys in him. I just don't think it's going to work out. And now I think his future's on the line. Like I said with Patrick Baldwin, you have one bad year. Well, you have one bad year. Somebody will still draft you. Have two bad years. That's a trend. A trend that NBA teams don't like. And 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 you talk about Aaron Wright, Aaron wrong. I hope I'm wrong on this one, but I would venture to guess if I had to take a guess right now, I would say that I bet it's more likely that this kid next year will be eligible for the NBA draft. I'd say it's more likely he goes undrafted than that he goes in the first round. And this was a kid that people were talking about as a generational. If he could enter the draft right now, he would go number one over X Y Z. I don't think he's getting drafted next year, and I hope I'm wrong on that. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. Gave you plenty to chew on here for a, for a Tuesday of a holiday week, but I am going to get out of here. A couple notes: uh, one, I do think next, I do think we'll probably drop the next episode Thursday, maybe Friday. Of course, if there's big news, we will adjust accordingly. Right? If if, if you know Notre Dame joins the ACC or something on Tuesday uh we'll of course address it you know uh you know we won't we're not gonna wait till thursday or friday but right now plan for an episode thursday friday the following week so not these next four days but i am away i have pre-recorded a few interviews that i think you're really gonna like john fanta from fox is one of them great interview with him that i can't wait for you guys and girls to hear uh but that's it that's it for today's show a couple notes uh first of all make sure you're subscribed apple spotify amazon music google music all that good stuff Make sure you are following on social media. Also do me a favor. If you could go to Apple, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you leave ratings and reviews, do me a quick favor and go ahead and leave a rating and review also. I said it the other day. What we'll do now, what we'll do next is when I do my mailbag episodes every single Wednesday, Friday, whenever we end up doing them, I will prioritize questions that were asked as ratings and reviews so Benjamin Allen Patrick dropped one the other day he said if college basketball were the stock market what teams are you buying and selling go ahead leave a rating and review leave a question there and I will answer it on the next episode Uh, but that's it that's all for today's show and I do appreciate everybody uh, joining me and I appreciate everybody's time I hope everybody did have a great holiday weekend but with that said I do think it is time for me to get out of here So thank you guys and girls for listening, Uh, and I will be back later this week. Next week, some fun long-form interviews with a couple people in media that I really like, really respect. Uh, So it's going to be a fun couple weeks, and then guess what? SEC Media Days are here, all that good stuff. One other announcement, too. If you love college football, College Football Betting Show is back this week. We're going to start with over-under win totals in the SEC East. So a deep dive on Tennessee, Florida, Kentucky, Georgia, Georgia and of course those other teams, Vanderbilt, Missouri, and South Carolina. That's all for today's show. I am going to get out of here. Thank you guys and girls for listening. Great Tuesday show. I'll be back later this week, and let me end by saying this. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick, UF head unblock me. I'll be back on Thursday, maybe Friday, maybe tomorrow if something crazy happens with a new episode of the Aaron Tor Sports Podcast.